there are answers to the big questions in life. Um, you know, the biggest questions are those questions that every worldview must answer in some way. Every, really, every religion, every belief system, whatever you want to call it, um, must deal with somewhere between three to five questions, something like that. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? Those are the three biggies. A couple others, one other at least that we could add to that is what, what is the good life? What gives life meaning while we're here? How should we live our lives? And really every religion, every worldview, every belief system, even atheism has to deal with those questions. And um, we've been talking... Uh, beginning uh, this this series about uh, the Bible, because really the Bible is kind of the foundation level. It's out of God's Word that all of our our beliefs and all of our uh, our th- our thought processes, all of it should flow uh, from the truth of God's Word. Now, I have one more question. Uh, in regards to the Bible that I want to deal with this morning. But before we begin looking at that, I just wanted to throw something out there uh, for your consideration. I have some ideas about where to go next, other big questions to deal with. Um, But also, I want to be as relevant as possible. And uh, hopefully, some of the things that, that we've already talked about have helped you, given you some answers. And if, if it's not a question that you've already thought of, hopefully you've been able to say, well, that is a good question. Well, what's the answer? And, and it's kind of fed your, uh, your mind and your soul in that way. But I also would like to know, what are your questions? Um, if you have some of those uh, things that just kind of hang around in the back of your mind and trouble you or bother you. Um, I I first want you to know, you need to know that it's okay uh, to have questions. It's okay to have doubts. It's okay to have uh, confusion. Um, what I think is not okay is to ignore those things and just try to carry on as if they are not there. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about unbelief. Um, I'm just talking about those things that trouble you or bother you. You know, the songwriter said, all my confusions he understood... Um, so if you have questions, uh, I would like to hear from you. Maybe you would like to, maybe you'd like to write them down, uh, or you could send them to me in a text message or an email if you have that and, and, uh, say, you know, pastor along these lines, here is something that has bothered me or troubled me, 
uh, and uh, I, I would like to know. Now, I'm, I'm not going to promise you that I can give you an answer, uh, but hopefully we can at least deal with some of those things. Uh, you know, this morning what we've talked about is a perfect example, uh, and, and we have in the past dealt with uh, what has been classically known as the problem of evil. If God is good and God is all-powerful, then why does God allow evil to persist in the world. Another way to frame that is why do bad things happen to good people? And uh, those kinds of questions have been asked over and over and over again. We may deal with that in the coming weeks. Uh, And uh, again, with all of this, I hope that you understand there are some things that I believe for a certainty, the answers that I'm giving you Uh, are the answer. For example, when we talk about God's Word, this is the foundation for life, for faith. I don't have a doubt about that in my mind. The, The fact that we can trust in and rest on this book is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it's something that happened in history, and that it validates everything in this book. I, that is, I don't have any doubts about that. I don't have any questions. Uh, some questions, such as the problem of evil, when we deal with those, I hope that you understand. I'm, I hope to give you information and, and, and tools to at least help you cope with life in the face of those kinds of difficulties, to, to understand that we won't probably ever have all of our questions answered, yet we can trust in a God who is bigger and knows more than we do. And with a lot of these questions, that's where we'll be going. Um, so anyway, just having thrown that out there again, I, I, want to, I want to hear your questions. I want to be relevant. I don't want to spend all of this time and, and, and preparation uh, answering questions that nobody's asking. <laughs> you know, as I said a moment ago, I hope when you hear the question that I suggest that maybe you do at least say, oh yeah, that is a good question. Um, but if you have questions, let me know. Uh, This morning, as we finish up looking at God's Word as the foundation for all of our questions, that's really why we're starting with this, is that it is the foundation uh, for all of our questions. Um, Why should we believe the Bible? Uh, We started with this. Uh, It has to do foundationally with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is because this is something that happened in history that, uh, that we even have the Bible as it is today. If that had not happened, we wouldn't have our New Testament. We would probably maybe have some form of the Hebrew Scriptures, but we wouldn't have the Bible as we know it today. But it is this fact, the historical fact of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of that, we can believe the Bible. Now, most doctrinal statements concerning uh, the authority and inerrancy of the Scripture have to do with the original manuscripts. And I believe that. That's what I was taught. That we believe the Bible is inerrant and authoritative in its original manuscripts. That means as it was originally written down. Uh, However, that leaves the question, 
what about the Bibles that we have today? Can we trust the Bible that we have today? And that's what we talked about last week. It is the fact that we can trust these these pages that we hold in our hand. Uh, and I quoted to you the Bible scholar and paleographer last week, Fred, uh, I believe it's Frederick Kenyon, who said the Christian today can hold the Bible in his hand and say that what I hold in my hand is the essential word of God that has been passed down from generation to generation without essential loss. That what we hold is true to what God intended for us to have. And in fact, it is true to the promise in Scripture. God promised us in his word that he would preserve his word. So, one big final question regarding the Bible. If all of these things are true, then what should our attitude and our approach be to the Scriptures? What should our attitude and our approach be to the Scriptures? Some people hear this. I mentioned to you, I believe, a couple weeks ago, the young man uh, that I I worked with for some time, uh, uh, I had... uh, this was when I was in Bible college, and I was taking an apologetics course, uh, which incidentally, that's a lot of what we're dealing with is apologetics. It has to do, uh, it, it doesn't have to do with apologizing, uh, but it has to do with defending your faith, presenting a reasoned argument for the Christian faith and for God's Word. That's really what we're doing. So I had this class, and and we were learning arguments and evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and the historical reliability for the New Testament and all of that. And one of the assignments that I had for that class was to walk somebody, uh, hopefully uh, a non-believer, to walk them through these arguments and and. The goal is, at the end of the arguments, to bring them to a point of, uh, of first of all, assent. To say, does this, you know, does it sound reasonable to you? Based on the arguments that I've presented, is it reasonable to say that the New Testament is historically reliable and that Jesus really did die and, and rise again from the grave? And this young man that, I, was, that I, I worked with in a secular job, you know, he kind of, casually nodded his head and said, yeah, it's probably, you know, sounds, sounds reasonable to believe. So the next logical question is, well, then would you stake your life on these beliefs that the Bible is true and Jesus died and rose from the grave and that it has relevance to you personally as an individual? And, and, um, just as casually, no, you know, he didn't think he wanted to do anything different with, with his life, didn't want to change anything about his life, uh, but he was just going to go on living as he had. If the Bible is true, if Jesus really died and rose again, what should our attitude and our approach be when we come to the Scriptures? I want to direct your attention to a passage from Acts chapter 17. <clears throat> Acts chapter 17 and verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. 
Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now, let's pause there for just a moment and back up. We have here a contrast. These Jews, the Jews at Berea, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Well, what was wrong with the Jews in Thessalonica? Well, you back up to the beginning of Acts chapter 17. And in the first few verses, you read about how Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica and they began speaking and teaching in the synagogue. And they did this for three Sabbath days, probably about three weeks time. And uh, they taught about Jesus Christ and how it was necessary for him to suffer and die and rise again. And verse 4 says, Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. These are the less noble Jews. The Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So those were the Jews in Thessalonica. Now let's go back again to the Jews in Berea. Verse 11, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So I want to present to you this morning three traits of a noble-minded person. I want to be a noble-minded person, don't you? I mean, certainly, it just, for one, it just sounds nice. Doesn't it sound nice? And I want to be a nice guy. I like people who are nice guys, and I want to be a nice guy. And I want to be a noble-minded person, especially when I read about the contrast between the Jews at Thessalonica and the Jews at Berea. And I want to say, well, Lord, I want to be like those Jews at Berea. How can I be a noble-minded Christian? Well, the first thing is, these noble Jews at Berea, they received the word. They received the the word. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it simply means that they were eager to listen. They were eager to listen, to hear the truth. They wanted to know the truth. And if the truth was something other than what they had believed it to be, they wanted to know that so they could shift in their beliefs of the truth. Do you know that there are a lot of people that do not want to know if the truth is other than what they have believed it to be? There are a lot of people in the world today that are convinced that the the world is one way, that truth is one way, and they are prejudiced. They have all of their presuppositions fixed in their minds and if there is something that counteracts or contradicts what they have believed to be the truth, they don't want to know about it. They don't want to hear about it. Probably for a number of reasons. I think one is that there are plenty of people that just simply don't want to face the fact that they could be wrong about some things. 
Say that again. Yeah, exactly. That's right. They do not want to face the fact that, the, that they could be wrong about something. So they had this value for truth, this value for truth that, uh, that to, they were okay if they found out that truth was something other than what they had perceived. In other words, they were people who were teachable. They were people who were teachable. They could hear And even if it was something other than what they had been told to believe, they were willing to receive it. Paul gives us these words in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth, rightly dividing the word of truth. So this is one of the ways that you and I can be a noble-minded Christian, to be receptive of the word, to receive the word, to be eager to hear, eager to listen, and have enough humility about ourselves to to be able to admit that we could be wrong about some things. We could be wrong in our presuppositions. And do you know what's interesting? Is if you are wrong in your presuppositions, you will be wrong in your conclusion. And it's very important. It's like the fellow that, was, the, the fellow that got lost. You, you've probably heard this story and stopped and asked for directions and And when the man asked him where he wanted to go, he said, I'm sorry, but you can't get there from here. If that's where you wanted to go, you should have started from someplace else. And that's like starting with the wrong presuppositions. If we assume that what we have always believed is true and we're not willing to admit that we might be wrong about something, then the conclusion that we will end up with will be wrong as well. So be receptive of the truth. Second, they searched the word. They searched the word. Uh, Again, verse 11, it says they were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In other words, when they heard Paul and Silas teaching and speaking in the synagogue, they went home, uh, or or, or, I I don't know, I say in our vernacular, they went home and looked at their Bibles to see. They probably didn't have Bibles at home like we do, but they would have had access to the scrolls and to uh, the, the Hebrew Scriptures. And it says they studied to see. This hopefully will not be too, I don't think this will be too long of a rabbit trail, just a short rabbit trail. Don't swallow everything you hear on the radio or the television, just hook, line, and sinker. Um, There are some good teachers and preachers on the radio and on the television, but folks, you got to be careful. There, now I believe... I believe that all of us at some point should grow in our faith to the point where we are able to sift truth from error and we can receive what is good 
and discard what we recognize as this is not scriptural as I understand it and lay, lay it aside. Um, we, we ought to be able to get there. There's some, there's some good people. I, you know, I'll just, I'll just mention, I'll just mention one. Um, there's a man named uh, uh, Dr. David Jeremiah. Some of you may have heard David Jeremiah. I've listened to him. I used to listen to him quite regularly. He was on where, where I used to live. He was on at a time when it was convenient for me to catch him on the radio, and, and I would listen to David Jeremiah. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the, his style of presentation, and most of the time he had a lot of good things to say. But there were a few times when I would catch on that I just did not agree with what he was saying. And so I said, well, that's okay. You know, that's his understanding and his, in, his interpretation, and I don't agree with that, but I set, set that aside. We as Christians need to be growing and maturing in our faith. This is why you need more than just what you get from me when you come to church on Sunday. You need to be reading and studying this book for yourself. You need to be learning it for yourself. You need to, uh, to have it uh, in your heart and examining. And to be quite honest, I want to know, um, you know, I want to know if I'm wrong. Some time ago, somebody took exception to something that I said, and uh, it's, it's nobody here, so you can relax. It's okay. There's nobody here. Um, but I, I had heard about this, and so I communicated with this, with this person, you know, if you believe that I'm in error in some way, would you please talk to me about it? Because I not only want to know for myself so that I am not in error, but I want to know so that I'm not leading others into error or falsehood. So by all means, if, if any of you ever have questions or concerns that you would say, you could bring your Bible to me. Now that's what I would look for. You could bring your Bible to me and say, Pastor, Look here. Here is what you said, and here is what you tend, what you seem to be teaching. But here's what I understand God's word to be saying, and I'm taking exception with. It. I I would be happy to talk with you, and to be so persuaded from God's word to to change my direction. When it says they examined the scriptures in verse 11, they examined the scriptures daily, that word means literally to sift up and down, to make careful and exact research as in legal processes. In fact, the same word is used in other places in our New Testament uh, of, of legal procedures. When uh, let's see, when Peter and John were brought before uh, the, the religious leaders after they had healed the lame man. You remember that story in the, earlier in the book of Acts? And it says they examined them. That's, it's the same word. Uh, it's, it's referring to a legal process. So these people were not only listening to what Paul and Silas had to say and, and thinking, hmm, yeah, that's interesting. That's a good thought. I've never thought about that. 
They were going far beyond that. They were going deep in their studies of the Scriptures and sifting up and down throughout God's Word to verify that what Paul and Silas was telling them was the truth. They searched the Word, and that's what it was they were looking for, is verification. Verification. And you know what happens when you get verification? What happens in God's word? Now, this is, this is something that, that we ought to be doing as we, uh, as we read the Bible. You know, I mentioned this last week when, when we were talking about what version of the Bible is the best version. Do you remember the answer? Yeah, it's the one you read. The one you will read, that's the best version. By, by that, I don't, I don't mean to suggest I, don't, I do happen to think there are some versions that are superior. There are translations that are superior to others. Um, yes, don't go there. Okay, I don't need to take that time now. Um, if you have questions about that, talk to me, and I will be glad to give you the information how to help you decide on what's a good, a good translation, a good Bible version uh, for me to read. Um, but you see, friends, as I, as I mentioned, you could read, if we could empirically verify, in other words, with evidence, if we could verify without doubt and say, this is the best version of the Bible, this is the best translation, this is the one that is the most true to what was originally written down, if we could verify that, but you and I were only reading it as an academic exercise, it wouldn't, do any, it wouldn't do us any good anyway. If we're only reading it just like we would read any other book. On the other hand, you can read a Bible even, as I said, uh, as I mentioned last week, I don't particularly care for the message, but I, I believe that there's enough of God's Word in it that if your heart is open and your spirit earnestly wants God to speak to you, that God will do that through even those kinds of translations. But what we need to do, the difference is found here. We, we quoted from Psalm 119 earlier. I'm going to read another verse to you from Psalm 119. It's Psalm 119 verse 18 that says this, it's, it's a prayer. He, he says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So in other words, we are reading God's word not just as, a, as an academic exercise, but, but we are reading it with a heart that is longing for enlightenment, for spiritual truth, to say, oh God, would you open my eyes, help me to see, help me to understand what it is that you want to say to me, speak to me. And when we, when we approach it in that way, God will speak to us, and God will verify for us the truth of his word. And once verified, you know what happens to God's word? God's word becomes light. To us. Once it has been verified, once we say, you know, we hear something that we haven't uh, thought about before, and we say, hmm, I'm going to really have to check that out to see if, I, if that's what I understand God's Word to be saying. And we pray, and we go to God's Word, and we read, and we study, and, 
and we say, Lord, is this really what you mean? Is this really what your word teaches? And once we verify it from Scripture and God's Spirit impresses that upon our hearts, it becomes light. And you know what the Christian is supposed to do with light? Walk in it. Yes, the Bible tells us we are supposed to walk in it. Now, I want to give you just a few thoughts here on light. This is a little... This is a little sidebar, um, not a sideline or a, or, a, or a rabbit trail, but this is a sidebar um, about light. First of all, what is light? Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 13 gives us the classic scriptural definition of light. Ephesians 5.13 says this, When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Or anything that becomes visible is light. Well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? So what does that mean for the Christian? Well, what that means is that information plus Holy Spirit persuasion that the information is true and scriptural is light. In other words, if you have information on the one hand and you verify that with scripture and the Holy Spirit verifies in your heart, yes, this is true, then that's light. Then the obligation for the Christian at that point is to walk in the light, to, to conform ourselves, to conform our lives to the light. However, did you know that it is possible to be prejudiced and close-hearted so that biblical information does not bring light? There are all kinds of people throughout history who have read God's Word, they've read the Bible, and it has, hasn't brought them light number of reasons why that, that could be the case, but one reason is simply that their heart is closed or they are prejudiced against the light. But there is a verse that can help us with that, John chapter 7 and verse 17. John chapter 7 verse 17 will tell us how to avoid this prejudice against light. These are the words of Jesus. It says simply this, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. That is how you avoid being prejudiced against light. That is to say, our will or our, uh, our attitude must be, God, I want to know what your will is so that I can do it. I want to know what your will is so that I can do it. Not, I want to know what your will is so I can decide whether or not I like it, and then I'll decide whether or not I'm going to do it. Not that. That won't work. If your attitude is to try to find out what God's will is so you can decide maybe whether or not you like it or not, and then decide whether or not you're going to do it, God probably will not speak to you. God probably will not give you light from his word. Um, now, he, he, may have, he may be merciful to you beyond what you deserve and sometimes speak to you and deal with your heart. But by and large, as we read the words of Jesus, if you want to know the truth, if you want light, it requires that be, we be willing and committed already to walk in the light. Say, Lord, whatever you say, I'll do. And then God talks to you and say, well, wait a minute. I, I, 
I didn't think about that, Lord. You, you meant that? <laughs> I'm not sure I can do that. Lord, I'm not sure I can make that change. But then you stop yourself. It's, I've, been, I've been there. Have any of you been there? Yeah, sure, I'll be honest. You know, I've been there. But you keep pressing forward, keep digging and say, okay, Lord, no, Lord, I said that I wanted to know your will so that I could do it. And along with that needs to be in the back of our minds this idea that God is not ever going to ask us anything that he won't help us to do. God's not ever going to ask us anything that is beyond what we can do. If he asks us to do it, if he calls us to do it, he will also enable us to do it. We can be confident in that. And so it's, it's, it's okay, it's safe to commit ourselves to walk in the light. And then finally, we have the wonderful results of walking in the light. These words from 1 John 1, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, is cleansing us. Cleanseth us, is the King James Version, but it's, it's present tense. That means it's working right now to keep us clean, to keep us in right relationship with God. So that's light. And that's what we do. That's our approach uh, to the Scriptures. When God uh, speaks to us, when, when we search the Scriptures and we verify that what we have learned is true, is scriptural, and the Holy Spirit impresses it upon our hearts, and then we say, yes, Lord, if you help me to do it, I will do it. I'll walk in the light. Then finally, they believed the word. They believed the word. Now, I want you to know this is beyond intellectual assent. This is beyond intellectual assent. The young man that I told you about earlier, uh, where I shared with him the evidence for the historical reliability of the New Testament and, and why uh, you know, we ought to believe that Jesus really died and rose from the grave and all of that, he gave an intellectual assent. He said, yeah, that's probably true. Um, in fact, the Bible tells us that even the demons of hell believe and tremble. In other words, they give an intellectual assent. But this is something that goes beyond intellectual assent. It comes to a point of making a decision and then doing. Making a decision and then doing. In other words, we say, God, if this is what you say, then this I, I'm going to decide to do it, and now I'm going to do it. Lord, your word teaches me that I should bless and not curse. I should bless those that curse me. Lord, this is what your word teaches me. So, Lord, I'm going to decide with your help, I am going to bless those who curse me. And then we say, Lord, help me to, to put that into practice. Hopefully, most of us, the, the opportunities to put that into practice are few and far between. Amen? I, I hope that I don't have to have a lot of practice at blessing those who curse me. Because I don't like it when that happens. And it's difficult for me to then say, yes, God bless you. I'm sorry that you're having a bad day. Uh, I'm sorry that, you know, whatever. That person that makes rude gestures at you when they're driving down the highway and you're driving too slow and they can't get around you and they finally do get around you and they, they make 
some kind of rude indication with their hand or whatever. What God's Word, I believe, what God's Word would have us to do is not to harbor that in our hearts, but love would assume, Christian love would assume the best and would say that person is probably having a bad day. Maybe they're trying, maybe they're on their way to an emergency or, you know. And you're, some of you, I know, are sitting there thinking in your heart, Pastor, you know that's not the case. Most of the time, those people are just bad, rude drivers. Well, that may be the case. That may be the case. But I'm, not, I'm just telling you what I believe Scripture would have us to do as Christians. You see, when this is what I'm. This is just an example. When God gives us light on something, He shows us that the information is scriptural, and the Holy Spirit impresses upon our heart. Then we, yes, we give our assent to it intellectually, but we also then decide, yes, Lord, I'm going to do that with Your help. And then, as life brings us opportunities to conform to that light, we respond, yes, we do it when we have the opportunity. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But it means that that's what it is to be a Christian and that God will help us. So I, my, my slide, that wasn't supposed to show up yet there. The role of faith. A- again, another, another little sidebar. That's what we're talking about when we talk about believing the word in this way. We decide and do. We walk in the light. Faith is, is believing to the point where you act on what you say you believe. It's, it's not just an intellectual assent. It's not just like the little boy that said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. It's, it's not that. It's when you go to your doctor and he tells you, you have this certain ailment and here's what needs to be done about it. You need to have this surgery or you need to have you need to take this medicine and if you take this if you have this surgery or if you take this medicine certain the right times a day, the go through the regimen, it will take care of your problem. Faith is when you listen to what your doctor says and then you go to the pharmacy on your way home and you pick up the medicine that he prescribes and you go home and you take it as he instructed you to take it. That's faith. And that's what faith in God is like. It's believing and then deciding and doing. So let's talk about this just quickly. The role of faith, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. You probably know this verse. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He rewards those who seek him. So, three parts to biblical believing faith. Three parts. First, faith believes what God says. Believes what God says. Second, it commits to do what God requires. It commits to do what God requires. And then finally, it trusts in what God promises. Trusts in what God promises. In other words, for, for example, we read in the writings of Paul, uh, in uh, Philippians chapter 4, uh, be careful for nothing, don't worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, 
and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall guard, shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So you have something that's troubling you, that's burdening your heart. Faith would be you, you go to that scripture and you read it or quote it to yourself. And I've done this many, many times. <clears throat> and then I take my problem to the Lord and I said, Lord, you told me that I was not to be worried about anything. Now, here's the problem that's troubling me and I'm going to give it to you and I'm going to thank you for what you're going to do about it. And now I'm trusting you, believing you that you will give me peace in my heart about that problem. And we get up our, uh, from our knees or from our place of prayer and we go our way, leaving that problem in God's hands. The noble-minded Christian, the noble-minded person receives the word, then examines the word, and then believes the word. You've heard this little simple illustration uh, before, no doubt, but it still is so appropriate that I just want to close with this with this little story, true story as far as I know about the, the famous uh, tightrope walker from history, Blondin, uh, who stretched a cable across the Niagara Falls and then walked across it and demonstrated. In fact, if you read about him, fascinating, fascinating story. He carried uh, a, a little cook stove on his back and, and walked out on that cable somehow or another, set that cook stove down, all the while balancing himself, balancing his cook stove, everything, cooked himself a little, I think a, maybe an egg or something, ate it, and then walked. He did all of that on the wire. So you can imagine, he had this, this uh, amazed, astonished audience, uh, audience who's watching him do all of these amazing things and walking across the wire. And, and then at one point, he pushes a wheelbarrow across the wire and, and he comes back and, you know, the, the audience is, is very enthralled and enthusiastic. And, you know, well, how many of you believe that I can take somebody across in this wheelbarrow? You know, and of course, everybody believed, oh, yeah, you know, they clap, they applaud, and cheer. You know, and then he, he said this, okay, now then I just need somebody to come and get in the wheelbarrow. That's faith in God's word. And that's what God calls us to. So if God's word is true, as we believe it to be, that Jesus died and rose again, Friends, it means we can stake our very life on it. We can conform our lives to its teachings. And we can live our whole life based on God's word. And friends, I can tell you, I can tell you about people who have been scholars of God's word. And they have done that. They've staked their lives on it. And it has worked for them. It has helped them. But I can also tell you about people who have had very little education, maybe just enough to be able to read their Bible and very simple in their thinking, not a, not a theological understanding, not a theological scholar, but a very daily practical use and understanding of God's word. And it's been good for them, too. It's held them. Amen. Let's stand together.